sulfide cider. Like, but what was it sulfide doing? Cinnamon? What was it doing to you? Oh, it, it it produced an overwhelming sense of impending doom. Impending doom. Oh, I didn't sleep that that month. I didn't sleep for 25 days. I didn't sleep What? at all. I didn't sleep at all for 25 days. How is that possible? That, that, that's I'll tell you how it's possible. You lay in bed, uh, frozen in something approximating terror for eight hours, and then you get up. salt and water that's it and i never cheat ever not even a little bit my diseases were put into complete remission by an all-meat diet if you use meat as a first food for a baby their head circumference is actually larger than babies fed without meat their head circumference is actually larger than babies fed without meat their head circumference is actually larger than I'm actually mostly eating lamb, which I haven't really told people because an all-lamb diet would get so much more flack than an all-beef diet. I'm, I'm working on a recipe book, which I think is going to be good because I hate cooking. Five days in, I gave up and I had lettuce, of all things. Uh, the next day, my arthritis and my mood had dipped significantly. I was itchy everywhere and freaking out. And I've been eating nothing but meat. Bacon, steak, elk meat, a lot of extra fat. Carnivore community. Carnivore community. It was definitely the story. Nothing changed in my life. And it was so dramatic. Like, I didn't stop crying for, like, five or six days. Didn't stop crying for, like, five or six days. It was definitely the story people that I respect that have tried, like Jordan Peterson in particular, that guy's a fucking genius. And when he's telling me what a massive impact it's had on him cognitively, he said that intellectually, he said it's his prime, he said all of his uh, immune system, autoimmune issues went away. Carnivore community. Carnivore community. Shapiro, will you bake Ruben a wedding cake? <laughs> okay, so, I mean, my answer is... Well, I'm married already. Right, he's but, married, but, he's married already. But, it was my anniversary last week. An anniversary cake would have been nice. Right, so I, so the answer is no. And the okay. reason I won't is because as a religious Jew, I, yeah. I do not participate in activities that I believe are sinful. Do not participate in activities that I believe are sinful. Producer Colton is forcing me to cook a turkey. Damn it. All right, here we go. I'm going to cook this monstrous thing. First, let's make sure it's dead. That's the first step. Okay. Now, I'm going to preheat the oven to 425 degrees telepathically. It's done. Okay, rinse the turkey and pat dry. This thing's large. <laughs> All right. Carnivore community. Carnivore community. The globalist obviously are hitting us through our water. It's time to take control of our lives. It's time to not give our children and families these poisons. It was definitely the soy. We have developed the ultimate male vitality supplement. This is the answer to the globalist war on male vitality with the estrogen mimickers. They've added the food and the water supply. The 
package members. They've added the food, the water supply. We're not covering Pizzagate enough, even though we cover it every day, to expose the Satanism and the occult and the code words for pedophilia. Great, great American food. Do you prefer McDonald's or I, I like them all. That's a tough question. If it's American, I like it. All American stuff. This idea of patriotic food is alive and well and killing people today. For example, look to India, where uh, Muslims have been killed on suspicion of eating beef. Damn it, I love this country. I can't think of anything more noble to go to war over than bacon and eggs. If you look at authoritarian populism in the past, um, Germany had ideas of blood and soil that uh, marshaled ideas of nationhood uh, and of uh, you know, tradition of who it is that should do the cooking and who should do the farming and the kind of authentically national food that should come out of the soil. I'm talking about actual vegan Nazis, neo-Nazis who don't consume or use animal products. Yes, they do exist. Some of them even have vegan cooking shows. Carver community. Carver community. whole obsession with food seems to have a pronounced neurotic flavor. Food. It's embedded into the very core of our being. Considering, you know, we need it to exist and stuff. It's quite important to us, to to all of us. Every single day we eat multiple meals. Unless, you know, you're one of those IDW Evo psych weirdos that goes on these eight-day fasts to increase your head circumference or whatever. (laughs) Um, But most of us, yeah, we, we eat pretty consistently, if we can. This act of shoving things into our faces for sustenance is certainly not exclusive to fascists or anti fascists As a whole, the broader act of it doesn't belong to any particular group, really. We all eat again and again and again forever until we can't. As I'm sure you know, the never-endingness of doing the fucking dishes is testament to that. But we don't have much of a choice in the matter. We gotta keep eating. What we can choose, though, is what we eat, how we eat, how we make it our own, how and if we make it more interesting, you know? The rituals and festivities we develop around this food thing. It appeals to all our senses, not just taste. Sight, smell, touch, 
sound. All of that matters to humankind probably more than we realize, and it sparks something very, very deep within us. And that's why food can be woven in so easily with authoritarianism, with control, with power, because it hits something so primal, because it's a necessity we would cease to exist without. And that's also why it makes up such a huge chunk of pop culture, of, of every culture, in fact. Our memories are trapped within certain food experiences from different times in our lives. It's just a lot. It evokes a lot of feelings. So it can be completely harmless and incredibly enjoyable. It brings people together and all of that. But it can also be used for evil. And on this podcast, we don't talk about harmless, enjoyable things, do we now? <laughs> so we will be talking about the evil, well-established relationship between food and fascism. This relationship between food and fascism is one that has existed throughout history. There have been different variations, of course, different foods at the center of it, but always similar themes of dominance and power, exclusion, nationalism and or religion, masculinity and social hierarchy. Lovely things like that, you know. You can see echoes of it on the surface in pop culture characters that seem fairly harmless, like Ron Swanson, who sort of satirizes the whole meat and masculinity thing. But from that, it's easy to see parallels with real-world, fash-adjacent types, like Jordan Peterson and his all-beef bullshit, his beef daughter. And suddenly, it's a lot less funny. Joe Rogan and his elk meat and Jimbro ice bath lifestyle. Fox News screeching about Biden coming for your burgers. You can follow that path all the way to Alex Jones and his conspiracy theories about globalists adding estrogen mimickers to the food and water supply. There's certainly a lot of demonization of what are considered by these types to be quote-unquote feminine foods, like soy. I mean, there was the whole alt-right soy boy label a couple years ago as just one example. And then there's this hyper-glorification of what they think is the pinnacle of masculinity, which is meat, of course, in the West at least. Actually, beyond the West, too. From personal experience, I can tell you that in Pakistani Muslim culture, meat-eating is heavily tied into ideas of virility and strength, and cultures and people that don't eat meat are often mocked as weak. And enjoying sour and tangy foods is thought of as feminine, weirdly. But even though meat is a strong element in these types of views, it's not always the case, because in India, that dynamic is flipped entirely, where it is vegetarianism that is seen as pure and superior, and meat-eating seen as impure and 
punishable by death even by vigilantes. Anti-beef sentiment has been used to whip up angry, murderous mobs in recent years, especially since India's extremely fashy, far-right Hindu nationalist Prime Minister Modi came into power. I've done an episode on the Hindu far-right before, but I will be revisiting the topic in more detail soon in an upcoming episode because things seem to be really, really horrendous there nowadays and sadly under-discussed in the podcasting circles that I'm familiar with. And then, even in the West, we see vegan Nazis and stuff. So I think it's really not so much about the specific food that is being demonized or glorified, but more about power dynamics and how that's used to control people and create a narrative. Heck, even ISIS used to post pictures of Western candy bars and chips and things to appeal to potential foreign recruits to show them the comforts of home. I remember many years ago now reading a piece um, about a guy that was taken in by all that and who was incredibly disappointed when he arrived and realized that the supply of Twix bars wasn't as plentiful as he had been made to believe. And then he was thinking about going back because of his disappointment. Um, (laughs) Oh, and how could I forget all the weird food shit with fucking Donald Trump these past few years. His obsession with fast food and Big Macs. As the president of the United States, his eating KFC with a knife and fork on a private plane. The juxtaposition of those things. So completely bizarre. But I believe it has been said that these things being so public might be a strategic choice to make him seem more relatable, authentic, and, you know, everyman-like. And in the same Trump era, we had the rise of the internet Nazis, too, and got to see a lot more of their gross food pictures. Yay! Whether it was their, what they called, anti-Muslim bread, because they greased the pan with bacon grease or MGTOW chicken, which you will hear mentioned in this episode in more detail further in, MGTOW being M-G-T-O-W, as in men going their own way, which is one of these awful manosphere subgroups. I think it's been described as a male separatist community (laughs) where they renounce their interactions with women. So yeah, from anti-Muslim bread to MGTOW chicken, it's all comically gross stuff stemming from their hatred of others. But while all the modern manifestations of this intertwining of fascism and food are important to examine, I think it's equally, if not more important, and horrifying even, to see how these things have come up and been used in similar ways in the past, to note the overlaps and tactics so that we may spot it or things like it happening around us today. The two main things that came up when I was doing my research for this episode were the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 and then um, how Mussolini used fascist food-related propaganda to control people, to promote public order and to homogenize people's palates, which sounds like something out of a dystopian sci-fi movie. 
Talia and I talked about both these things in some detail, but there's still a lot more that I found during my research um, for this episode. So I thought it'd be good to include some of the things that didn't make it into our conversation in the intro as a sort of primer and to properly frame this topic. Of course, let me add that I am not a food historian or any type of historian. Um, So if I missed anything or got something wrong, my apologies in advance. Let me start with the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which was as horrendous as it sounds. It basically was a federal law that prohibited immigration of all Chinese laborers into the United States, and it remained in effect till 1943. This law didn't crop up out of nowhere. Of course, these things don't happen in a vacuum. Before this, there was growing anti-Chinese sentiment, anti-Chinese violence, which seems very relevant in the COVID era and with the surrounding anti-Asian and anti-Chinese sentiment and violence that we've seen in recent years specifically. The Chinese Exclusion Act was built on top of various policies that were already in place targeting Chinese migrants. And they were blamed, as is a common theme, for taking jobs and keeping wages low. In India today, we see that kind of resentment and animosity towards Muslims for having economic success as well. Chinese workers were referred to as rice eaters and were excluded and slurred on the basis of something like rice. Ironically, though, as people tried to exclude them on the basis of food, there was a sort of loophole where one of the only ways for Chinese people to enter California, for example, was by obtaining merchant status, by opening a restaurant. And it was through that that these business owners could travel back to China and bring in family members as employees. So this loophole resulted in a massive amount of Chinese restaurants being opened at that time. I think now the U.S. has something like more than 40,000 Chinese restaurants. Oh, the irony of racist and xenophobic laws in the U.S. resulting in the expansion of Chinese food deliciousness. Anyway, this Chinese restaurant boom sadly caused more resentment and fear-mongering. There were boycotts organized, fines imposed on people eating there, police officers volunteered to patrol the restaurants because white society viewed these places as depraved dens of moral corruption. And these cops would just, like, order white women out because they thought they weren't safe in the presence of Chinese men. Another ongoing theme in these moral panics is this sexual anxiety. Then there was Mussolini and the Futurists, which we talked about more on the episode, as you'll hear. The gastronomic nationalism is strongly present here, too. You know, the use of food as a way to form nationalist identities or to exclude people. It's just so effective because it's a way to control the most basic and immediate needs of people. And Mussolini used things like industrialization and canning, as in the canning of food, 
to standardize flavor and recipes across the land and to erase regional differences. Then there was futurism, which was an art movement as well as a social movement in the early 20th century. It originated in Italy, and uh, a guy called Filippo Tommaso Marinetti wrote the Manifesto of Futurism in 1909. And in my humble opinion, it seems to be a very IDW-esque group of pretentious, edgelord, anti-feminist tech bros, basically, circle-jerking through art instead of podcasts, you know? Futurism glorified modernity, violence, war, and technology, and they wanted to liberate Italy from the weight of its past. They openly embraced and championed fascism, and they had this similar odd feature of positioning themselves as the only ones able to look at the future head-on and ask the difficult questions. While they were actually ultra-conservative in ideology. Does that sound at all familiar? They wrote some pretentious-ass cookbook and wanted only pure Italian ingredients that weren't contaminated by other countries' inferior ingredients, which of course went hand-in-hand with Mussolini's goals. Some of their ideas, though, were less than practical, so they didn't quite catch on. (laughs) You'll hear more about those in the episode. But there was a rationalization of the household and kitchen movement. It echoed all the fascist regime's ideas of, you know, efficiency, productivity, domesticity, gender hierarchy for women, nationalism even, as well as tying nicely into the futurists' embrace of modernity. I found this particularly fascinating and IDW-esque, this idea that efficiency and strict gender roles in the household and kitchen better serve the fascist state and leave more time for maternal duties, which of course then directly contribute to improving and increasing the pure Italian race. Sounds like an article you might see in Quillette today, with a little polishing, no? (laughs) This was a time when clocks were popular things to install into your kitchen and to monitor efficiency. And recipes changed from things like, ah, season to taste or salt to taste to very specific numeric quantities and exact cooking times. Modern gadgets were encouraged because, you know, rational, futurist, and fascist. Some of the modern rational gadgets introduced during Mussolini's fascist era included the juicer, vegetable strainer, handle-operated egg beater, and a mechanical mixer designed to help with prepping pasta. Great, great stuff. Just lacking, like, kitchen calipers or something to, to really complete the rationalization of the household. Like, how are you going to rationally measure the circumference of your oranges and apples, eh? (laughs) And this food fashiness didn't end there, of course. To this day, we see xenophobia and food pretty closely intertwined in present-day Italy, too. According to an article from Eater.com, 
Since 2009, town governments throughout Italy have been banning foreign or ethnic food shops from opening up with varying explanations. Apparently, Florence's government was worried that the city's Italian culture was being watered down through the proliferation of foreign food. And also, in 2009, the Tuscan town of Lucca banned Arabic and Chinese food, citing preservation of its food and agriculture, but it did not prohibit the opening of new French establishments within its old city walls. I wonder why. Hmm. And, you know, this food fashiness certainly isn't limited to Italy either. As we've pretty thoroughly discussed by now, you see far-right freakouts in completely bad faith over halal food, over gender-neutral gingerbread cookies, over green M&Ms that are supposedly no longer fuckable. You see mosques vandalized with pork and bacon products. Food has always been a way for awful people to target, manipulate, and exclude the vulnerable. The same tactics and fears resurface repeatedly. And, you know, I I happen to think it's important that we notice those patterns. Now, dear listeners, if you enjoy this show, please consider supporting via patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes, because this is entirely listener funded, and without listeners like you, creating things like this is impossible. So a huge thank you to all my patrons who do help me make this happen. These things could happen faster and in better quality. If you'd like that, please sign up today. And if you are waiting for a new installment of the Woking Up mini-series, I will get back to it soonish, I promise. I often need a break from that very heavy and emotionally draining project of mine. If you haven't heard it, do check it out, though, especially if you are interested in the IDW and Sam Harris's brand of hackery in particular. I will link it in the show notes, but you can find it on the Polite Conversations feed on all your favorite podcast apps. I am gearing up for season two of Woking Up as well, as season one comes nearer to its end, but in order to even think about beginning that, I will need to hit my next Patreon goal. So if you enjoy the show and want more of it, you know what to do. You will get access to early releases and our brand new Patreon exclusive series that I just launched, as well as all sorts of other patron perks. And if you can't support via Patreon right now, then you can always review it on iTunes, retweet it, share it with your friends, talk about it. All of that makes a huge difference. Thank you so much, everyone. And now to the conversation part of the episode. And I apologize, I think the connection was a bit iffy at some parts, so the audio is choppy here and there, but mostly okay. Here we go.
make sure that uh, that program doesn't contain controversial subjects and uh, you're not impolite to people. No, definitely not, Dad. You know me. I'm never, <laughs> ever controversial or yeah, impolite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Welcome to Conversations with your lovable, never pisses anyone off, ex-Muslim host, Ina, keeping it non-controversial. Hello, and welcome to episode 68 of Polite Conversations. Today, I have Talia Levin with me, author of Culture Warlords and writer of the very interesting The Sword and the Sandwich substack. And today, we will be covering food and fascism and fashy types of people. Hello, Talia. How are you doing? Um, great. I, I really love this topic because it covers the two things I write about most often. Um, usually I write about them separately, but it's kind of fun to hear them together. <laughs> That's right. That's why I, uh, reached out to you and I'm so glad you could make it on for this episode. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's definitely a ton to cover from like so many different angles. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I guess food overlaps more or less with everything, which is why I love writing about food. Mm-hmm. There's no like sector of human life that food doesn't intersect with at some point or another. And fascism is definitely part of that. Yeah. Has been from sort of the earliest times men oppressed man they <laughs> the way they did that was through food or lack thereof or whatever that's um, right can you tell i'm trying really hard to sound profound <laughs> no no not at all but you sounded anyway so one of the first things that came to mind when you approached me with this topic was an article that came out years ago by the very funny and very uh, smart journalist Andy Campbell, who basically wrote about like why does all the food that people post on like Gab and uh, you know these various fascist forums like why does it always look so fucking terrible? <laughs> yeah, I have not read that article, but that is a great question. Like it's just like the trad wives and etc. Like kind of they always they post their like food inspiration or whatever the mctow chicken yeah yeah so that's another super famous example i don't know if andy actually brought it up in in that article but uh that's from david futrell's blog uh, that where i first well it was from a men going their own way which is sort of a subset of of incel dumb Mm -hmm. blog uh Basically, the guy describes how he makes chicken, um, and it's just the driest, like, set. it's just, like, put a chicken breast in the oven for, like, a million years with no spices <laughs> on it. Like, you don't need a woman. Now you are living like a Caesar. Like, it was just, like, a comically bad recipe. Um, just, dep- like, it <laughs> depressed in advance, because there are people who must eat this way and I feel sad for them yeah for sure Uh, and what are they trying to prove with the no spices thing 
I, I don't know. I think that they're just bad cooks. I don't think it's that deep. <laughs> it's like they're trying to prove that they can endure like the most tasteless, awful food or some kind of brave move to cook your chicken till it's a rock. Like I, I saw a picture of this MGTOW chicken and it's like completely white or beige and like a dried husk of a breast like absolutely not even salt or pepper nothing no yeah it's truly a harrowing document (laughs) um looking into the soul of a broken man i would say that what struck me more like first of all it was funny that this is their like revenge against women is eating like absolutely awful food um (laughs) like that's apparently funny to me yeah we don't need women we can eat terrible food all on our own and i'm not saying there aren't men who can cook um in fact once chefs became sort of a lucrative and um like prestigious profession they started muscling women out of professional kitchens as as quickly as right but um it's just like yeah we're like a men's independence movement and and we're gonna prove it by just eating the most tasteless and awful food. But also you'll see like, you know, on Gab, on like sort of far right Facebook groups, um, these just like astoundingly, like impressively bad looking piles of goop. And I remember when I was tracking for culture warlords, I spent like, a brain-melting amount of time on Telegram. Just <laughs> oh. uh, really not a fun time for me as a Jew, as a human being. Like, Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Uh, you know, I don't recommend that to anyone, um, but one thing that sort of came up and was, like, a surprisingly consistent theme would be, like, cooking advice. You know, because th- there were all kinds of sort of fascist, lifestyle-y hmm you know, channels, and a lot of them were sort of emphasizing this back to nature, like, live on your own, Mm. like, get out of the Jewish system, stuff like, like, (laughs) like that, and, and it would be like, uh, like, I, I just remember, like, vividly this sort of nightmarishly bland image, um, that some guy was posting, he, he ate, and he's like, yeah, like, this is how to live, you know, I traded this turnip for, like, like nothing from store, and it was just, like, this incredibly bland-looking giant piece of meat, like, with, you know, a turnip, just, like, a single huge slab of unseasoned turnip. Oh, gosh. Well, at least that's more elaborate than Jordan Peterson and Michaela Peterson will allow themselves to have because that's just like slabs of meat and salt I think yeah I think they only eat meat and salt and um do you ever listen to the podcast maintenance phase oh yeah absolutely and Michael Hobbs has been on this show too oh awesome well then I'm in great company Mm -hmm. but they did a whole episode about the Peterson diet and they actually like sent me the rough cut to listen to um, for like sensitivity stuff, mm. and you know the far right angle, whatever, whatever. Uh, uh, not to brag, I'm just really cool. Um, <laughs> but no, but the 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 really funny thing to me was that 
like uh, about Peterson specifically, they were so nice about like, you know, well, he has these problems and it's like, yeah. they were just actually super nice. Cause they're very nice people. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously that, and they wanted to be sensitive to his issues with opioid addiction. But I like when I, that shit first came out, I was just like, I just re- like, have, I've been referring to Michaela Peterson privately to myself as meat daughter for like years. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I call her beef daughter. Yeah. I mean, yeah. she, She's the beef daughter. That's right. Like, she's just like, yeah, like, I, I got my dad to eat. And then him, he, it's him, like, going on all these shows and being like, yeah, like, this diet will make you shit yourself. <laughs> but, like, it, it got rid of my depression, except the time that I had to go to Moscow to right. go into an coma about it. And also apple cider will knock you out for, like, 25 days or something. I don't remember anymore the exact specifics of that, but it was several days. He couldn't sleep. That's what it was. He couldn't sleep because of apple cider for 10, 12, maybe 20 days. I don't remember. Something like that. Yeah, I think, like, you would probably die if you (laughs) didn't sleep at all for 20 days. Yeah, it was ridiculous. I mean, it's interesting, like... There are many foods that, I mean, if we look at, like, the far right or fascists or fascia-adjacent crowds more broadly, like, you know, when you get into the sort of manosphere, mm-hmm. as with the MGTOWs, um, there are, of course, you know, tons and, and tons of, of food associations there. Yeah, it's you know all meat and 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 there's the keto stuff and there's just all kinds of not to put too fine a point on it of like fuckery and you know there's the Black Rifle Coffee Company which I think like had some association with Kyle Rittenhouse. That's right. They gave him like a sponsorship or something. Yeah, which good job, guys. Doing great. Um, yeah. Oh, and then there was, I think, like, about a year ago, they the the whole far right was, like, in a panic, fear-mongering about this absolute lie that Biden and AOC were going to come for your hamburgers, and, like, part of his uh, plan for the climate issues was to limit Americans to four pounds of beef, I think it was. Four pounds of beef per year. And that was based on completely nothing, yet they all ran with it. I think, like, it was Tucker and Donald Trump Jr. Like, running on lies? I'm shocked. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, that be happening in this establishment. It's just, I mean, it's always funny covering, like, far-right stuff just because so much of it is just lying and, 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 and moral panics of various Yeah, kinds. exactly. But, um you know, how do I put this decorously? Do I have to put things decorously? Many debates. Um, yeah, I mean, I think obviously food is this, I mean, one of the reasons I write about food, um, on my Substack, where I've, I've had this ongoing project of, um, going through, wikipedia's list of sandwiches uh yeah it's such an interesting project like what what made you want to start a sub stack about 
sandwiches. Well, I have been I had been wanting to cover Wikipedia's list of sandwiches specifically for like years. Hmm. Uh, an old roommate and I had like uh, had an idea that we would do it as a blog back, <laughs> sort of the era of the blog. Yeah. And you know now I guess it's more of an era of the Substack. So mm-hmm. I ran with that, but um, yeah, I mean in essence. Like, I love it because it's such a profoundly weird document and the the way that sort of the the best of Wikipedia can be. Like, it's it's super democratic. It covers stuff from all over the world. Mm -hmm. It is just like obviously people's weird fixations. Uh, You know, the other part of it that's so great is that it's just like a lot of stuff I haven't heard of. So every week I learn something you know. Yeah, and your more, most recent one, I think it was, uh, was about the Pakistani bun kebab sandwich, or and the the use of the word burger in Pakistan as well. Yeah, and, and you told me that you have been a food blogger. Oh, no. Uh, no, I was a blogger about Pakistan and sexuality. Definitely oh, not I, food. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I I must have uh, mis like um, just gotten my listening wires crossed. Yeah, but yeah, that, that's fine. That was totally. Fa- I mean, that was totally fascinating to me, and that's like the the absolute joy of food writing is that I can, you know, go in with very little expectations of what I'm gonna learn, and you know, all of a sudden this I'm like, oh wow, like the burger is like a very potent symbol of class. And yeah. Like, I just, you know, you, you come in, if you come in sort of ready to be surprised, you can, like, find out just so many things. Um, that is, like, the awesome part. Like, it, you know, a, san- a, a cigar may sometimes be just a cigar, but a sandwich is almost never just a sandwich. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, it was so interesting to read it from a non-South Asian perspective, because I don't think I've heard the bun kebab discussed from a non-Pakistani or Indian perspective like ever. So it was just interesting to see it from your eyes. Uh, and the, the magic whole... The, that's the magic of the list. You know, it's like... Yeah. I've covered, like, all this stuff that I... I Like, even American stuff I hadn't heard about, like uh, bologna salad sandwiches. Like, oh. what? I didn't even know there was bologna salad, and, and now I do. Um, yeah. So, you know, it can get really wild and fascinating yeah. uh, that way yeah definitely and uh, and even in the fashy food stuff there's such a theme throughout history of food being like used as an indicator of social hierarchy and used to oppress certain people and so I think the bun kebab and burger aspect of the like it just all ties in so nicely because it it is true that at at some point the bun kebab and which is essentially like a more Pakistani version of a burger looking thing with with a bun and uh, uh, it can be a potato or it can be like lentils and meat in the middle um, but like with more. Pakistani spices and you know it oh yeah it's it's fantastic but that's what I mean like it's had a revival now where it's like this like trendy hipster-esque kind of food that is now more valued in the posher 
areas. It sounded, though, like it was totally a street food. And what was interesting to me was, like, you know, New York, where I live, has a ton of restaurants with, like, you know, and, and there's no shortage of Pakistani cuisine. But except for, like, literally one street cart in Flushing, I could not find anywhere that um, that did a bun kebab. And that that's, like, in and of itself sort of says something about the statue. Oh, yeah, yeah, because it's not your standard restaurant food. It's absolutely street cart food. But at least in Toronto now, we have, like, a whole South Asian street, and there are your restaurant restaurants, but then there are your more street foodie uh, kind of... They're not exact. They're, like, takeout places. So they would probably have it, but... Yeah, I mean... Uh, but so I think just to, to, so I'm not like totally derailing the podcast, I'll say that I was thinking about, um, the, like the bun kebab is compelling in its own right. Um, but also you have, I mean, there are so many, like, just totally weird ways that fascism and food interact. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking, uh, you know, in, in your lovely and exhaustive sort of pre-show, what should we talk about notes? Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned a topic that I was really fascinated by in my high school nerd, like, like I read a lot of manifestos, not like in a Ted Kaczynski way, like in a, <laughs> I was like, I thought Dadaism was really cool. Mm. Um, you know, that, that, that whole sort of period in the art world where like a manifesto was sort of the thing to have. Yeah. Um, I do think manifestos have, it's sort of regret, regrettable that manifestos have gone out of style. Cause I think they're pretty, they're um, like associated well, with serial killers now or mass shootings. Yeah, like, but, like, art manifestos and statements of purpose in that way, like, they, they can be clarifying and fascinating. Yeah. Um, but that is a different rant for a different time. <laughs> yeah, so during this manifesto phase, I came across uh, the Futurists. And so they were an art movement in <clears throat> Italy in, what was it, the 30s? In the early 1900s, I think it had, like, two phases. Like, yeah. I think the manifesto was written in 1909. Yeah, yeah. And so they were headed by this guy, F.T. Marinetti. And they were basically, I mean, there are echoes of them now in certain ways. What, what they primarily did, above all, was worship uh, technology. Right. Like, right there in the name, you know? Like, like, like they just kind of believed that, that technology was good, like, like sort of anything that points you towards the future is inher- inherently good. And that, you know, Italy needed to be sort of dragged kicking and screaming into the 20th century. And one of the ways that they expressed this vehement desire um, was basically by shitting on Italian food. Which right, they had like an anti pasta campaign. It is so absurd to me when I read about that. Yeah, because it makes you sluggish and brutish. Which, to be fair, after having eaten pasta, I haven't <laughs> felt. Yeah, but okay. So their reasoning was not only that, but 
also tied into their open embrace of fascism. The pasta was like a a heavier, more feminine kind of food that they associated with lower classes, and it just wasn't suitable for a more fascist and fit and masculine society as they wanted to create, because they were like early, early anti-feminists, and they would have fit right into like the YouTube scene or the intellectual dark web or the tech bros, you know? God, yeah. I mean, I think in some ways, like, so much of the world now is, like, unintentional. Like, they might not know it, but they are the children of the futurists. Yeah. Um, But, you know, one of the things that really fascinates me, I mean, like, I am, like, it was like, the, the Futurist Manifesto fascinated me as a teen because it was so, it was, like, obviously evil, but also just beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um which is very rarely the case for contemporary fascist manifestos. <laughs> um, I can't remember ever like like being super wildly impressed by like a, a, the beautiful writing on fucking whatever Stormfront. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, you know, it was sort of like, wow, this is a beautiful and evil shiny object, which can be fascinating in its own right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess what I was gonna say like this sort of imbuing food with uh very intense symbology like that's definitely not new definitely not unique to to fascists and definitely not like it didn't end with the futurists like so you know we have this obsession with like meat is is masculinity yeah now um we have like you know, trad wives posting their shit cuisine on you know like gab and whatnot and so you know, I think food is always a signifier and it's interesting, like what they try to convey with it. If that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Because it's such a basic necessity and such an easy way to control and manipulate a population. If you can get into their heads about what they eat. Right. Yeah. And like, so they're, you know, in the eco-fascist movement, you have people like talking about sort of clean eating. Hmm. Uh, you know, you have this fascination with sort of getting off the grid and and like leaving the system. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of thing. Some of the ways that that manifests itself is obviously through through food. Um, yeah, and yeah, and it is easy to mock these food blogs that just. I mean, these food posts that just like look. Absolutely fucking disgusting. Um, and <laughs> right. I'm not going to refrain from that. They're, they look really gross. And yeah. if you're trying, it's just like, man, you're trying to like recruit me. Like the f- in the future, I'll just like eat super sad, depressing turnips. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. And this, this might be a bit of an old reference, but do you remember Peter Sweden and the awful, awful looking plates that he would post? And uh, Paul Joseph Watson would like post like, um, Libs are mad. like me putting like shredded cheese on salmon. Exactly, shredded cheese on salmon. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> it's just so terrible. Like the libs aren't like mad at you. No, the libs just looks disgusting, dude. <laughs> like if you want to eat horrible food, like go ahead. <laughs> just you know, I mean, I suppose don't like, don't force your lifestyle down our throats, <laughs> uh, as they would say, maybe. 
it's always funny. I, I would say that one of the elements of comedy to me is always when like people are like wildly un- unduly confident about like skills they don't possess uh, in actuality and um, sort of fast food disgustingness is is, is always um, a bit of a comic gold mine. Oh yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, uh, just to go back to the futurist for a second. Oh, back to the futurists. That would be back to the futurists. Ooh, yeah, that's a great. Uh, I want to title this episode that, but we're not entirely talking about futurists. Otherwise, I would have. But would have been a good title. Uh, yeah, back to the futurists. Okay, well, I'll use that for something. Um, but they had a. They came out with actually a cookbook. That's right. Yeah. And it's bananas. Um, it's like all about. It sort of reads like a prefiguration of uh, molecular gastronomy. Actually, mm-hmm. it's like all like, the experience that you have, and you should be like listening to certain music, mm-hmm. and like of course the food should be imbued with like the latest of technology. So it like kind of reads like you know uh, like you're going to like a horribly pretentious restaurant in the yeah. era of molecular gastronomy. Like that's what it reminded me of. <laughs> yeah. But um, so you know maybe Ferran Adria is a f- big old fascist and that's why he cooks like that. Um, but, uh, you didn't hear it here. Um, <laughs> but anyway, didn't they also like, I think Marinetti also advocated for the abolition of knife and fork. That's also one of those pretentious kind of things like, Oh, look at me. I'm so edgy and cool. And I want to eat without utensils because it's new and exciting. And, and, the the idea that they stressed that uh, food was about the whole experience and the the sensory thing of it and the aesthetic appeal rather than this uh, gross like satisfying hunger ew you know what's that all about no 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 we're not about that yeah reading a description of their sort of this thing that they invented that was like the the ritual meal or whatever it was like this multi-course thing and it was like the second course was like the or third course was like the vegetable course and it was just like a bunch of (laughs) raw vegetables on a plate and uh you were supposed to dig in with your face and then whenever like the guests would move like move their heads up to chew the food the waiters would spray them with perfume. (laughs) (laughs) Would pay to avoid. That sounds horrible. It sounds awful. And it sounds like something from a Cronenberg movie, maybe. Yeah. Or like, um, ever seen, this is going to be one of the more pretentious sentences I've said on a podcast. Um, have you ever seen the petite, uh, what is it? The petite charm of the bourgeoisie it's called. It's like, uh, uh, a, I think a movie by Luis Buñuel and it was sort of satirizing, I don't know what, like, uh, um, bourgeois sentiments or whatever, but like he imagines a future where, um, people like sit, uh, they, 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 <laughs> they, shit at uh the table yeah. um but they like sort of sit and eat in like little hidden rooms um it was kind of like i guess making fun of the arbitrariness of the fact that like we as a society have decided that like you know pooping is shameful but 
this other bodily function of eating is very social. Oh, um, that's a weird, weird point to make. <laughs> like, they're very different, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, it's like the guy, like, kind of, like, sits in this, like, little booth and eats a chicken leg. It's sort of funny. I mean, I, I, I kind of get his point. Um, I do think there are reasons why we, like, eat in public and shit in private. But, like, whatever. You know, it's all fair game. But the reason I was reminded of this was just because, like, the way the futurists tried to make it into this big, like, food into this sort of ceremonial act. Right. Like, very and sort of, like, make it part theater, at least, like, sort of reminded me of Buñuel's notion in that way. Mm. So just going back to the pasta point for a second, uh, the fact that uh, they called it an absurd Italian gastronomic religion also fascinated me and kind of related to the IDW in my mind. I don't know how much you follow, how they're now, like, going on about the new religion of anti-racism and, you know, like just calling things you don't like or don't approve of religion. I mean, in fairness, there is a certain uh, level of like respect for pasta, perhaps verging on worship <laughs> um, in, in Italy and also in my house. Um, <laughs> so you fully embrace the religion badge for pasta then i would say that it's probably the the least absurd religion well, that's fair Sorry. <laughs> that lovely new york ambient noise no um i would say it's it's one of the less absurd religions i could think of um yeah no that that definitely makes sense everything about the futurist is very over the top um and i i just just the image of like sticking your face in like a broccoli and then when you come up to chew being sprayed with perfume <laughs> yeah it sounds or like very unpleasant and, the, and they were like really it's also like you shouldn't underestimate their influence when you talk about Mussolini in, in, in Italy because also Mussolini like of all the fascists like had a pretty striking aesthetic sense yeah like you know plastic image of the building with sort of the face on it and C, 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 C written on it. Like, um, fascism in general is always very, um, was very concerned with aesthetic. Um, yeah, yeah. I've done a whole, uh, a couple of episodes on fascist fashion with ContraPoints, uh, a couple of years ago. That was fun. Yeah. So, you know, it is sort of a whole of lifestyle thing. Yeah. Um, down to the food you eat. And of course the trad wife movement, you know, growing their own food, making their own food. Um, all of that becomes a part of it. Um, these ideas of sort of the, the, the romanticization of sort of self-sufficiency of meat. Yeah, exactly. And with Mussolini, the self-sufficiency was a big thing because it was just part of his fascist ideals that he did not want to be dependent on other countries for ingredients and also part of the whole purity aspect where they wanted like pure Italian ingredients and the futurists as well did not want uh, contamination by any other country's ingredients and... Yeah, they coupled their xenophobia with their 
self-sufficient, you know, very productive kind of views. Like, just like how they put down pasta, futurists detested what they called xenomania, which they observed in the restaurants, like... Uh, restaurants and grand hotels of that time were always like you know serving different culinary experiences different types of foods and the fashy futurists did not appreciate that and uh, again <laughs> reminds me everything reminds me of the IDW I apologize I cover them so much that uh, I see things through that lens <laughs> way too much I I have to say I pity you. <laughs> I, I I don't mean I pity you. Like whatever. Like I, I I cover sort of the scum of the earth. Yeah, yeah. You know Nazis, and even they annoy me less than the IDW. Just because the IDW is just as fashy and just as awful, but they like try to sort of pretend they're not, yes. and they're always begging the question <laughs> and this yes. like horrifically irritating idea. Yes. Is there is there IDW food? Do, like, the Weinstein brothers have some weird diet? <laughs> there was this now, you know, famously mocked picture of the the IDW members, like, having a dinner together. And <laughs> I don't know if you know Gad Sad. Uh, um, terrible guy. Terrible guy. But it's good if you don't know him. But he was kind of mad at Barry Weiss for not including him in the original Welcome to the Renegades or Introducing the Renegades of the Intellectual Dark Web piece. And he just, like, had a tantrum on Twitter, <laughs> angry at her for not including him. So everyone started calling him, like, this D-list wannabe IDWer. Like, he's so terrible he couldn't even... I've ever heard... I know. Can you imagine? It's super sad to be desperate to be in the IDW. So everyone started photoshopping Gad Sad in, like, the bushes in this photo. Do you know the photo I'm talking about? It's, like, Sam Harris, Joe Rogan, Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, Eric Weinstein, and they're all at this outdoor dinner place. The Blavengers. <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, that's so funny. Uh, it's also just, like, to me, I think, like, also a marker of just, like, how incestuous these fucking, like, things are is is just, like, like it's such a massive wink fest. Oh, yeah. And if you listen to their podcasts, they're all, like, on each other's podcasts. Like, like they're just rotating. Now there's some falling out and whatnot, but... Before, it was the same four people on the same four podcasts in rotation, constantly, forever, just talking about the same thing for years. Oh, so I'm glad uh, COVID shook them up a bit. Has anti-racism gone too far? Precisely, precisely. And <laughs> people have too many rights. <laughs> just asking questions, you know, we're just intellectual. And oh, and this this is about the futurists and pasta thing. Also reminded me of the IDW is that the futurists also employed similar tactics as the fascists in their anti-pasta campaign. By soliciting statements from scientists and physicists to bolster their claims about, you know, pasta being inedible and draining you of creativity and intelligence and all of that. And that is very much 
the mission of, you know, the IDW will race an IQ. Here's a scientist that agrees with me, and here's another hand-picked scientist that agrees with me. Or, you know, even about COVID vaccines, some of them have gone in that direction. Yeah, and it's like, here's the one scientist that all the other <laughs> scientists hate, and like, you know, just like them, it's like, because... Like, one thing that's a really, really common theme with, like, essentially confederacies of jagweeds is, like, the way that, like, being sort of universally despised is some sort of marker of, like, authenticity or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. You must be doing something right if you're pissing off everyone. Right. And it's like, no, you could just be being a, a jagweed. <laughs> I, I, I love that word so much. I think it's very expressive and it, it doesn't... Unlike a lot of, ins I like I try to be careful that my insults aren't actually slurs. Mm -hmm. Many, to my knowledge, I don't think jagweed insults any ethnic groups. So that's that's a, always a plus. <laughs> um, I mean, if the jagweeds are insulted, I think that's the goal ultimately. <laughs> um, but yeah, and also they do this thing in their you know, new interpretation of futurism or whatever the IDW I'm still talking about is that they try to prove that they're not racist because they so often have to defend themselves against these accusations in which, you know, they think everybody else has gone mad um, because so-and-so scientist agrees with them. But in their defenses, they often use things like um, well, you know, I enjoy food and cuisine and music of so many different cultures. How could I do that if I was racist? And they've even used terms like, what was it? Eric Weinstein used this term, xenophilic restrictionist. What? Uh, Just try to make sense of that. <laughs> I, that hurt my brain. Yeah, yeah, it was designed to. My poor tiny brain can't handle much more of this. Oh, I, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I mean, it is interesting. Xenomania, like, I feel like so much of fascism is just, like, appealing to the sort of center or imagined center by sort of saying, don't you think progress has just gone a bit too mm, far? Exactly, exactly. This, like, time-honored you know, fascist tactic, and, and this is a common observation, but, you know, Hitler's main base, the people that sort of made Hitler Hitler um, and made him possible were not so much like the, obviously the brown shirts were, were vital, but, like, it was the ordinary people, the sort of shopkeepers and the people who were kind of like, yeah, you know, well, this guy makes some good points. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. The grandmas and the... Yeah, it was the petite bourgeoisie that was really his his base yeah. at the end of the day. Like, just as now, you know, the people who are animating this sort of rise of fascist theocracy in the U.S. are, you know, by and large, pretty ordinary people. Yeah. One of the things that was sort of a lesson for me... Um, as I was covering this stuff, was really the degree to which, um, like, so, you know, uh, one of the things I did for my book was I joined a, a white supremacist dating site. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
um, whitedate.net. Oh, dear. They sen- they've since denounced me as a Jew. Um, <laughs> but, uh, like, you know, I did a lot of, uh, you know, undercover talking to ordinary fascists. And right. I think it's always, it always behooves us to remind ourselves of the sort of, not to use a cliche phrase, but the banality of evil. Um, just the ways in which so many of these people, you know, we tend to think of fascists as either sort of evil masterminds yeah, or sort of not we as in you and me, but I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, people who are not as familiar with the landscape, a very, very common thread in the way people think about fascists and people who get embroiled in fascist movements who are drawn to them, they think of them as either sort of evil, diabolical masterminds or sort of downtrodden schmucks. Right. And, you know, um, there's often an inherent classism in the way people approach talking about, you know, who's a fascist, who becomes a fascist. And, you know, it's sort of, I I call it the legend of toothless Cletus, where it's sort of like Mm. um, people imagine the sort of, prototypical fascist as being, you know, someone who lives in his mom's basement in the South. They have this very sort of clear... Uneducated and... Uneducated, sort of fundamentally in some way not responsible for his actions. Um, You know, either because of poor education or moral depravity of some sort. And it's really striking just, like, how durable that desire to preserve, like, a kind of, like, innocence almost. Yeah, yeah. um, Becomes. Kind of strip the mother agency and just blame it on some external factor. I saw that a lot with, like, jihadists and stuff, too, when people would criticize them. There'd be a lot of people rushing, but you know, they're immigrants and they had to face a lot of racism. And I'm like, no, like I'm an immigrant and I had to face racism and I did not go that route. So no, let's not do that. Yeah. Yeah. Overlap between people excusing racists and people excusing jihadists is probably not a hundred percent. But there, yeah, there is this sort of, possibly well-meaning road to in in the sense of like the road to hell is paved with good intentions kind of a way um you know this sort of perennial excusing of people who get embroiled in fascist movements and what has been really striking to me you know what was really striking to me in 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 these conversations that i had with you know men eager enough to sign up for a fascist website and also uh let's say um naively hopeful enough to sign up for a fascist website that was so bad at attracting women it like literally had a suggested flyer for <laughs> that you could hand to random white women in the hopes they would join Um, but at any rate, like what was really striking to me in many ways, many surreal ways, the conversations really just resembled all the other conversations I'd had in my various forays into online dating. You know, people are people even when they're fascist. And, and so sometimes the conversation would get around to food and it was, you know, it's like, 
it was just like a very powerful reminder of like, yeah, these aren't, these are neither super geniuses nor the sort of downtrodden white man. Yeah. Yeah. Like the true, you know, man of the masses as like so many people would have you believe they're just like people who eat pork and beans, you know, or beef on toast or whatever. Like, and you know they'll ask you what you had for dinner, and then they'll they'll talk about their racist beliefs. Like, right, right. <laughs> so, you know, it was a very concrete illustration of the the banality of evil. I would say. Yeah, I suppose food does bring that aspect of everyday life into it. There was that uh, New York Times profile where they did like this very kind of Nazi next door boy, like with the tattoo of a a slice of cherry pie and he's planning for his wedding next summer and it was just such a weird profile that like almost um normalized and legitimized the guy oh yes i remember that vividly and it it, it, to to the credit of um some other members of the press corps it did get mocked to shit yeah uh, (laughs) by anyone with like half a brain but yeah i mean that's occasionally in interviews i'll say like you know um, like members of the mainstream media who get shocked, you know, when like a Nazi doesn't like literally jizz a swastika, like, uh, you know, uh, onto the floor. Yeah. While making and like, that's always the interview I have in mind, you know, that and sort of the infamous Richard Spencer, the dapper Nazi, dapper Nazi interview, like one, but it, it, yeah, like food did play a big role in that particular piece because I think they went to like an Arby's or something or a sushi restaurant. Maybe, maybe I'm misremembering, but that's what I remember. But yeah, they did talk about, Oh, and then, you know, we just ate and drank and had a good time or like fascists have, you know, bodily functions. Congratulations (laughs) for figuring that one out. Yeah. Like, there's this very particular blindness to like the idea that yeah, like fascists, you know, even fascists eat, fascists sleep, fascists like are human beings. That doesn't That's preclude right. that. like again, it's this sort of like unless someone is like at all times like dressed in a you know Nazi bedsheet costume, like yeah, you know their humanity, like the fact that they are human, is a big surprise, right? Right, it's not going to always be in that caricature form that, you know, people expect it to be. So, And then there was that Atlantic article that was a couple of years ago where they were like, oh, you know, where Lauren Southern has been for the past few years, you know, when Lauren was making her comeback, and now she pretends to have not been a Nazi type ever. Um, but that Atlantic profile of her had a segment where they were like, I don't know, with her and her then-boyfriend at at a restaurant. And they wrote this observation where, like, Lauren was eating, and then she asked her boyfriend, or she said, mentioned that her boyfriend doesn't eat anything that is not from a white country, so he will probably not eat ketchup because it has origins in China. And I'm like, that is, (laughs) to be that kind of a... of a racist takes a lot of energy and like research really you really got to know what originates where so i don't think ketchup originated in china i think that's like a i remember there there were like recipes for like mushroom catsup in like england and oh really 
um, like, like, like hundreds of years ago. So, I mean, maybe it originated in China, like thousands of years ago, but like, mm, yeah, maybe. I mean, that's what it like, let me read the, okay. I found the screenshot from the Atlantic. He and Southern decided to go out to dinner and to let me film them. Hutchison refuses to eat food originally from non-white countries, such as ketchup, whose origins are in China, so the two facing limited restaurant options chose the British-style Oxley Public House in Toronto's Yorkville neighborhood. So, yeah, I don't know. I think that's also so, like, I mean, I think that is, it's interesting because it's very silly. Um, it's a very good example of sort of how ridiculous and contorted fascism can make your life. And also it's probably inaccurate. I, I don't know, but, um, like it's one thing not to eat Chinese food. I don't know. Actually it's one racist thing. Oh yeah. There's a whole history of like, you know, the, Chinese restaurants and the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, where the U.S. banned immigrants from China, and well, there was a lot of violence, and people were feeling threatened by them accusations of taking jobs and keeping wages low, and then when Chinese restaurants started becoming popular, there were actually. People were suggesting laws to prevent white women from entering those restaurants. Like, specifically, because there was this kind of moral panic about them being corrupt dens of opium where white women will be, like, raped. And there's always, like, this sexual panic, you know? They do that with Muslim migrants all the time, and... Yeah, and and black men, like... And black men and trans people and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, it reads like projection. <laughs> like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, especially given, you know... If you look at, like, the Ep- Epstein Plain Manifesto, like, it was not... Uh, it was overwhelmingly white, let's put it that way. Or, like, the British... Yeah. Um, bunch of white people. Absolute nonsense uh, to, the, to, to the last man. Um, but I mean, I guess what sort of fascinates me, um, I mean, I think if I were, no, I wouldn't sit down in a restaurant with Lauren Southern. Um, I can think of a lot of things I would do if I met Lauren Southern in person, but um, <laughs> sitting down at a restaurant would not be like in the top 40. Um, but you know, of course, like, it's like a quirky little detail or whatever. Um, but you do see some elements of that in, like, the rank-and-file fascist chats where, you know, the that's part of the reason why, you know, they want to become self-sufficient in food and, um, you know, learn farming and shit because, because they want to get away from, like, the Jewish influence and the foreign influence on, on food. Right. Which does tie into the the futurists' like hatred of quote unquote xenomania. Exactly, exactly. Um, it's this idea of like you know anything that is quote unquote foreign is corrupt and corrupting. Right, and, um, and we have to be insular. We have to limit our horizons. 
because, you know, then we might discover something horrible, like Ed Young is delicious. <laughs> and Mussolini himself saw Americans and the British as gluttonous and not as industrious and productive and fit and masculine, fashy societies like, you know, like Italy's. So he chose to very publicly advertise his, you know, strict and healthy eating diet, which included he did not like eating meat, apparently, and he just had, like, bowls of cloves of red garlic and vinegar and lemon juice, and just, it does not, it does not sound great, but it sounds like a kind of parallel with Peterson, even though Peterson is the opposite, and the scale of that. He does the whole meat and masculinity thing. And, you know, this this stuff varies. There's, like, one aspect that's all about, like, social hierarchy and opulence in food and um, lavishness. And then there's one where they're like, oh, no, we don't want to satisfy hunger and we're going to have a strict, healthy diet because we are disciplined in that way. And then there's the meat and dominating nature kind of, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think... The, the like signifier and signified in food like like everything else in human society it doesn't remain static it changes time yeah um but like what we see in the sort of changing tides of fascist food fashion mm-hmm. say that 10 times fast <laughs> um is sort of a how to put it like What's continuous is is the um, the sort of whole of life aspect, where you know fascism is supposed to sort of fascism kind of very intentionally like colonizes your whole mindset and your whole being. Yeah. Um, and that is both striking and quite consistent across you know the like since Mussolini's time it's this idea that like it's like when you're a jet you're a jet all the way (laughs) yeah um you know that it's this whole of life commitment it's this sort of not just an aesthetic but also has a very strong aesthetic Um, exactly so yeah and and I think food you know, is always part of these kinds of choices. Um, so, you know, whether now it's like, don't take away our meat or we'll kill you with a gun, Hmm. you know, versus maybe prior it was like, let's, you know, abhor the decadence of the, of the capitalists and, you know, non-fascist capitalist countries via like eating our grain bowls of yeah yeah um fitness yeah, you know yeah ultimately you come to the same place which is like um we represent purity our like way of being is sort of incontrovertible and unconquerable like we are sort of the ultimate arbiters of what's right and just and pure yeah and you know of course it's also it, these notions of ideal physique mm-hmm. um, are also very consistent across fascist movements and across time. So, oh yeah, you know, contemporary fascism is is rife with like wildly intense fat phobia. 
And I've noticed yeah. that, you know... Like the golden one. That's what I was thinking of when I was looking at the Mussolini-era, like, uh, posters, like, wheat propaganda posters of, like, golden fit men with, like, you know, wheat just, like, coming out of their crotch or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, unaddressed fascist homoeroticism is definitely also a consistent theme. But, oh, yeah. uh, but I mean, you know, one thing, like... Obviously, the fact that I'm a Jewish woman is, like, a huge part of the reason fascists react to me so violently, but another piece is that I am fat. Like, I am not sort of slim, mm. um, to put it mildly, and that is definitely, like, I have noticed that that aspect of my physique um, attracts almost as much virulence as, like, mm. my Jewishness, mm. which, you know, considering how much fascists hate Jews is like no small thing. Right, um, right. So that's definitely been something that I've noticed. And that's interesting because often the people that are mad at me online, they get very ultra mad because they don't have anything to go by to insult my looks on. Like they, they just, they don't know what I look like, so they can't hurl the insults based on that, and that makes them mad. So I get comments like, oh, she's probably anonymous because she's super ugly. Or um, I remember Gad Sad again, the same D-list IDW wannabe guy. He spent, like, I think four days on Twitter tweeting about how obsessed I am with him. Uh, nonstop he was tweeting about me because I had pointed out in some... Uh, blog or publication that he actually was friendly with like Holocaust deniers and white genocide types. So he started then calling me plumpy pineapples because my Twitter handle is nice mangoes. And like, that's not even a good insult. <laughs> I know, but he, he was still fat shaming me, even though he doesn't know what I look like. Amazing. Um, no, I, I mean, I'm very reluctant to appear on video. I've been doing some videos lately because I've been trying to raise money for the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund. Uh, right, um, right. So for the past few days, I've been just, like, doing absolutely ridiculous videos in my, you know, backyard, like, hanging out with a sword, um, destroying various, like, items of food. Um, <laughs> misogynist cantaloupes and things. Yeah, I've yeah. seen it. It's good. Good stuff. Two, two enormous sausages. Um, that kind right. of thing. Uh, but I usually am pretty scrupulous about not appearing on camera just because, like, the reactions to my appearance are very oh. intense and vitriolic. Uh, but that's so upsetting. It really shouldn't have to be that way. But yeah. Awful. I'm sorry you have to go through that. Oh, it's fine. I mean, at this point, I have the hide of a rhino, as well as the face of a rhino. Um, <laughs> no, it, it it's sort of like... They, they'll, they'll take whatever approach they can, um, kind of thing, wherever they think um, you're weak, they'll hit you. But uh, anyway, the, the reason I, I had brought up uh, fat shaming and obsession with appearance in the first place is because um, it's so consistent. Um, this idea that fascists have had over like a long period of time of kind of um, 
finding and celebrating the ideal physique. Mm. Um, this kind of, uh, like aesthetic of like, you know, what the ideal human being should look like. Mm -hmm. Um, that's very consistent over time and appears in, you know, a variety of different kinds of fascist movements, um, fascist adjacent movements, like nationalist movements and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, where like the kind of what a person looks like in their morality and their worth to society are, are sort of intimately interconnected. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and I think like creating these sort of rigid diets where like, you know, this is how to be a true man. This is how to be, you know, a true like pinnacle of fascist ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of monitoring food intake that way, um, to me is very internally consistent because they have this obsession, this aesthetic, uh, and utilitarian obsession with an ideal physique. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's like, I mean, obviously they also want to affect cultural change and, you know, are usually wildly xenophobic. And so that's, you know, another big part of it. But, um, to me, like, it's like also, you know, when you are in the business of sort of eugenically crafting your ideal human, right. you'll want to like tightly monitor what your ideal human eats. Yeah. And often they're just plain wrong too, right? Like I noticed that there was like three main fascist food propaganda campaigns, like wheat, sugar, I think. I forget what the third one was. Um, but wheat and sugar... And those were the products that that Mussolini wanted to elevate. And, you know, the sugar propaganda posters and whatever had these, like, athletic men and, like, robust-looking babies in their mother's arms. And, you know, obviously that's very old information. But now that is not what you would think of when you think sugar, right? That it, uh, it makes you fit and strong and so good for babies and... Um, <laughs> and then there was this like ongoing theme with the wheat ones of like inseminating the land and uh, the interrelated fascist notions of production and reproduction and the Italian earth being fertile and maternal and you know reproducing the perfect pure race while producing the perfect pure crops. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> I yeah, fuck literally fucking the earth with your feet. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> coming out of your crotch, crotch bosom. There was even like wheat coming from a bosom, and just yeah, just weird, weird imagery. But yeah, thank you, Talia, for giving me uh, your time this evening. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you on this topic. My God, yeah, no, and I, I could and would happily talk like for much longer. It's like I feel like I could talk about this for ages. It's under discussed, I think, and also just sort of there's a great little phrase that um, Danny Lavery used to use in his Dear Prudence columns. It's like life is a rich tapestry, and like yeah, the story of fascism and food is certainly a rich and variegated one yeah (laughs) and i i really enjoyed speaking with you awesome take care okay bye. bye thanks for listening to another episode of polite conversations 
You can support this podcast by sharing the shit out of it, making some noise about it, or contributing via Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes. No Ian mangoes. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at nice mangoes. If you want to make a one-time donation instead of a monthly Patreon one, you can do so via PayPal. NiceMangoes.blog at gmail.com. Remember, no Ian Mangoes. If you've got an interesting story and would potentially like to be a guest, you can email me there too.